You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the Internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. General Director of the Chartered Institute of Public Relations and the Global Alliance, Colin Farrington goes on the record online. There's no evidence that blogging has improved the level of political discourse. Uh, People's instant reactions to things, writing screeds of things late at night, um, uh, you know, does not seem to me to add to the level of civilized political discourse you might think. And thank you for joining us for another episode of On the Record Online, recorded at the PRSA International Conference 2007 in Philadelphia. This is the podcast that brings you the story behind the story. Uh, What we do here are in-depth interviews with journalists from the mainstream media, and from time to time we also talk to bloggers, podcasters, and newsmakers about how technology is changing and threatening to disrupt the mainstream media business as we know it. My name is Eric Schwartzman. I host the podcast. I am also the managing director of Schwartzman & Associates, a boutique Los Angeles-based PR firm specializing in entertainment, media, and technology clientele. Uh, I am also the founder and chairman of iPressroom Corporation, uh, which helps organizations including Target, Trend Micro, and UCLA Uh, extend the reach and effectiveness of their marketing and PR communications online using the latest new media tools and services integrated into one powerful dashboard. Today we have a one-on-one interview with Colin Farrington. He has been an advocate and leader for public relations in England uh, since joining as general director. uh, The uh, membership at the Chartered Institute for Public Relations has grown by 40% and PR has been transformed from a career people fall into uh, to one that they actively pursue, according to PR Week. He is also a principal advisor to the Institute's council and is responsible for the delivery of the Institute's modernization strategy. Uh, The discussion with him today runs around 18 minutes, and as always, it comes to you entirely unedited. After this. Don't be left behind. Get the latest online PR tools and services from iPressroom. Powerful, easy to use, available on demand. Extend your sphere of influence online with iPressroom. Tools for online media centers, virtual private press rooms, RSS news feeds, podcasts, and more at www.ipressroom.com. iPressroom, always on, even when you're off. Colin Farrington, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Tell us, what is your mandate as General Director of the Charter Institute of Public Relations? Well, the Charter Institute of Public Relations is the United Kingdom equivalent of the Public Relations Society of America. We have 9,000 members, so we're proportionately a little bit bigger than the PRSA um, uh, in terms of the size of our economy. Uh, And our mandate, we have a Royal Charter from the Queen, is to uh, protect, promote, advance the interests of the public relations profession, uh, to advocate issues that are important to the public relations profession, to provide the basic training and, and, and skills that public relations people need. And in my wider role as chairman of the Global Alliance 
course, ours is an international community, which the Public Relations Society of America is an important part. And so um, how did you come to be involved with the organization? Well, I'm a, a head of the organization. I was, I'm employed by it. Uh, we have 38 staff. Uh, we have a voluntary leadership as well. So um, we came to be involved internationally, in particular our relations with the Public Relations Society of America initiative about 10 years ago when we realized that public relations people across the world were not talking to each other as much as they should do. Uh, people tend to work in closed communities. America, if I may say so, is particularly isolated sometimes. I'm going to hear tomorrow from Karen Hughes about global diplomacy and about American public diplomacy. It's so important, I think, that we, in a globalized world, we do talk to each other and we understand the challenges we, 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 we face in different countries and different continents. Talk to us about um, how your perceptions and, do you think, um, uh, your country's perceptions uh, towards the U.S. have changed at this time of war. Well, you've hit a very controversial issue, and I have to, I'm not going to be guarded, but I'm going to say that there are many different views about this. I made a speech about seven years ago, before 9-11, in which I was expressing real worries about the image of the United States in the world, and particularly because of the United States' failure to offer leadership on issues such as climate change, and uh, to understand its role as the premier, most dominant society in the world, most dominant country. Things have got a lot worse since then. I think 9-11 was a terrible lost opportunity. The United States had to express global leadership. I think we lost the battle of opinion. I think the battle of opinion was lost with the Iraq war. And it's going to take a long time to recover that. I think the fundamental thing that Americans need to do and understand, and I don't want to sound condescending about this, uh, in a sense it's, a, it's a, a tribute to the United States that people look at it as a beacon of humanitarian values and liberal values and it has to always to guard that sense of values and issues like Guantanamo Bay and so forth have damaged America's image in the community and the world community as has Britain's part in that it's going to take a long time to recover that so in, in many ways um, from the international perspective uh, Britain was seen as in cahoots with the US um, walk me through uh, the sort of uh, national sentiment within the UK and how it's changed uh, with um, uh, Tony Blair's uh, leaving office. Mm. I think it's about the, the, you have to distinguish between long-term issues and short-term issues. I think that Britain has always had a very long-term deep relationship with the United States and that will continue and has not been damaged fundamentally by what has happened. Uh, but it has been set back. And Britain, of course, has this strange pivotal position of having both its history with the Commonwealth former empire, it's close, obviously, geographically to Europe and a strong integration with the European Union, but also there's these strong bonds of, of language and the common love I've referred to of democracy and humanitarian values with the United States. And those things are going to continue over a long period. There are going to be ups and downs. I think what we've had with the replacement of Mr. Uh, Blair by Mr. Brown is perhaps a return to a more normal relationship that's not based on just friendliness and, and, and uh, shared common interests between two people, but a more long-term interest of shared values. And Mr. Brown, I think, is a, is a very serious man, much, much more serious, is seen as much more serious man than Mr. Blair. That may be part of his problem electorally with the electorate. He's seen as rather dour. But he does convey a sense, I think, of the importance of maintaining those common core values, which Mr. Blair occasionally seemed to want to give away for short-term gains. So, um, if you were 
the uh, Secretary of State here at the U.S. today. Uh, what what would you do to change international perceptions? What what policy changes would need to be made? I think you're right to talk about policy changes because sometimes one is asked what public relations changes you make, and you cannot. Public relations has to be intimately acquainted and connected with policy, and I think that. One can put a certain amount of efforts, I'm sure Karen Hughes will say tomorrow, into public diplomacy, and I think a lot more could and should be done about that, the common values which need to be explained. But I think that in terms of um, a, a change of policy, it is more about consultation, uh, bringing people in, of talking, uh, as did not really happen in the run-up to the Iraq war, uh, trying to persuade, trying to share information, uh, with European leaders, with leaders worldwide, with, with you in the United Nations. And I think also, I mean, I think the other big issues, leaving aside the issues of war and peace and terrorism, the other big issues around climate change and the environment, I think the overwhelming scientific evidence suggests that the United States has been slow to grasp those issues and is still seen as somebody that, that holds on to gas-guzzling cars, fails to take action on environmental issues, fails to share common goals on those issues with other parts of the world. And I think there are some substantive changes that ought to be made there. Let's, on the lighter side, mm. let's talk about sports. The NFL, uh, the National Football League, the U.S. Football League, is going to have the second game in the U.K. Uh, that they're having this season. And for so many years, the NFL has been desperately trying to export the excitement of American football to the U.K., with little success, even though the games sell out, it really hasn't caught on in the UK. And then, at the same time, even though uh, in Los Angeles um, we've 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 hired David Beckham to play on our our, our soccer team, uh, soccer hasn't really taken off in the U.S. Is there any? Is, why is that? I mean, why the cross-cultural divide in sports? And is there any way marketing and PR could grease the wheels? I don't see why it should. Actually, I mean, I think. One of the things I'm going to say when I speak at the conference tomorrow is that globalization is absolutely fine and is happening. But equally, what is extraordinary is a revival of regional and local things. In Europe, you see a great revival of regionalism. We see uh, national parliaments in, in Wales and Scotland introduced in Britain. We see discussions about the future of Belgium, whether they should continue as one country. But we see a huge revival in, in minority cultures, in languages, in literature and music uh, right across Europe, which I found a fascinating and very good uh, thing. I don't think it's the same with sport. I mean, you, know, you see revivals of the most bizarre little sports. So why shouldn't you have uh, sports that are successful in some parts of the world that are, that are linked to people's psyche? Americans apparently like high-scoring games. I'm told that's why football is not... Uh, our soccer is not very successful in the USA. And that's sort of... I'm, I'm not a great sports person. But, I mean, we've got cricket, which is in many ways a quintessentially English game, which is, you know, it goes to South Africa and Australia, which is a very slow game indeed. I mean, the best cricket matches last five days and stop for tea occasionally. So there is a difference in cultural attitude. And I think, well, why, you know, okay, let's have these NFL games in London. People want them. Let's have basketball, let's have volleyball, let's have all these things, let people have fun. But, you know, fundamentally, there is a culture and a history, a tradition of doing certain things certain ways. And in my experience, and I make this wider, broader point, which is quite a serious point, is that globalization has as its sort of converse, and it's fascinating to see it, actually people want to revive local tra tra uh, traditions and live a, a regional life, 
regional food, all these things are coming back. And this is a fascinating paradox of the world today. Colin, uh, this is a podcast, and it's going to be released on the conference blog. So I have to ask the elephant in the room question, because you've gone on the record saying you're not a fan of blogs. Why not? I'm, I, my uh, view about blogs is that um, if you take the political world in Britain, uh, there's no evidence that blogging has improved the level of political discourse. Uh, people's instant reactions to things, writing screeds of things late at night, um, uh, you know, does not seem to me to add to the level of civilized political discourse. You might think that's rather an old-fashioned word to use that one wants to see. In human terms, I mean, one of the things that that, that concerns me is that students and others. Somebody the other day was writing a news letter in one of our national newspapers saying there's a ticking time bomb behind many people's careers because they've gone on record on blogs as students and in their early adult life and said some very, very stupid things. And now all that is coming out and, and people routinely at big jobs in the city and so forth looking at what people say. They Google them, they find out things in blogs. So all I was saying to people, and I wrote an article a while ago about blogs, to say, you know, think before you... Right. Blogging is not a substitute for thought. Uh, blogging can be fantastic if it, it brings new people into exchanges and discourse, and we have interesting arguments, get different points of view, interactive people thinking about things, exchanging ideas and opinions right across the world. Incredibly important, and you can see it in situations like Burma, where people were blogging what was going on there. I was in Ukraine a few weeks ago. Blogging had a big impact there. But in our countries where there is great access to information, all I'm saying is, think before you blog, and don't believe that everything that you say is of equal importance to what everybody else says, because it isn't. And that's not the way that society should be run. We're in this news climate where popular opinion can be swayed via the internet in a matter of minutes. Rightful or not, Mm. popular opinion can be swayed as a result of anarchy, as a result of popularity alone. Um, and obviously preparing a, a written statement, um, you know, measured language takes time to develop. Mm. So is it better to take the time to craft a carefully articulated response in a crisis situation? Or should organizations uh, be willing to just jump in and participate in the online discussion as it, as it occurs? Well, I think I suppose the ideal answer that's somewhere between the two is that there's the truth of the matter. You cannot simply you know, say, well, I'm going to come back to you uh, in, in 12 hours' time when we thought about it. Um, you, but uh, and if you get the instant answer wrong or if you appear to be kowtowing to things without thinking them through, you're going to be storing up, uh, storing up difficulties. I think there are some very good examples of the way that crisis communication is 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 uh, is, um, is handled. Uh, I think to give them in a certain, in, in UK context, where people did actually come in reasonably quickly uh, and comment and state what the facts were, but they didn't try to dominate the whole blogging thing. They didn't answer every single point that was made. I think you've got to try and steer a balance. Um, and at the end of the day. Um, bearing in mind what a litigious society we all all live in as well, you have to make sure that you get your point of view across in a firm and measured way. Uh, And that's something that I think that our discourse generally in society benefits from if people can try to hold on to that. Well, let's talk about that specifically. I I was reading on the way out here the Wall Street Journal and there was a story and it said, I wrote it down, according to Comscore, which is uh, uh, they measure uh, discussion online, 
According to Comscore, in August there were uh, 542.9 million users of email that accessed primarily via the web, and 483.7 million social networking users worldwide. How does PR communicate effectively with that audience? How should PR tap into that audience, or, or do you feel as though we shouldn't? One should, but I think you have to recognize that it is a matter of uh, identifying and narrowing down where that social media actually is and what sectors it is. For example, I was talking the other week to one of our leading public relations firm in the city of London, and uh, we talked about social media, what what impact has social media had on their business and their activities. And he said virtually none, because their business is concerned with investor relations and in selling products to a market, where in that particular sector, there are very few users and very few activists. Maybe not be true in New York, it may not be true in other financial centres, but in London, social media has not penetrated the city, as it were, corporate sector. So his view was, well, we'll just wait and see, but there's no, there isn't anything to be done at the moment. If you go to the retail sector, the business-to-business sector, you see a different thing. And again, it depends what sector you're in. In some sectors, uh, you, there is a need to monitor very closely shifts of public opinion, some of which are expressed through social media. In the political sector, again, I think Britain is not quite in the same situation as the United States, but there, there can be an impact or political comment and political statements that come out uh, that are noticed by people in the social media that come out. It's a question of, of horses for courses, as we say at the moment. Close analysis, uh, not allowing yourself to be over-dominated by, by social media. I, I, one of my things I do occasionally, I write for one of the big, um, big newspapers in London, and we advise small businesses as a way of promoting the use of public relations. Time and time again, small business people uh, think, how can I expand my business uh, how can I make it global? And they all say, we'll have a web page. We'll go on the internet. Well, as we know, that's only a tool you know, that can be useful in certain circumstances, but can be very damaging in other circumstances. It's not managed properly, and it's not linked to the basic strategy of the business. So it's all a matter, I think, of analysing what your objectives are, what your tools are. There's nothing terribly original about that. Uh, but and social media doesn't change that. Social media is just another tool to add, and a complicated, complex, ever-changing one, keep in touch with it. So given um, the trend towards globalization, will tomorrow's press release be written in Bangalore? Um, No, for the same reason that five, six years ago, there's a huge um, movement of call centers. Uh, If you rang your bank in Britain, you quite possibly get somebody uh, answering you who had a very strong accent, nothing against strong accents, but they had difficulty in understanding what you were saying and would finally admit they were in... um, Uh, Bangalore or or, or somewhere overseas. Now, in the last few years, um, there's been increasingly uh, a reversal of that process because companies realize they cannot offer all the goodwill in the world, despite the much lower costs they're incurring, cannot offer the level of service that that customers are expecting. And everything in business now, ultimately, I think, this is a general point, people have become obsessed by cost and not about level of service in many companies. And we're finding in Britain, certainly, as a reversal of that. People actually want quality of service, ease of service. They want responses from the insurance companies, their banks or whatever, that are good and clear and crisp and do the job they offer, not cheap shortcuts. So I think the answer to your question is, no, it will not happen for the moment, because the quality of service that would be required and the abilities that would be required do not exist 
accepted certain very narrow situations. So I think uh, the, the, the ability to write, to communicate, to have an interactive dialogue with the people you're dealing with is almost certainly not going to be something that can be satisfied by mass production of something as sensitive as that out of your own country. Colin, how can people get involved with the Council and the Global Alliance? The Global Alliance, through their national association, I mean, the PRSA has representatives on the Global Alliance. We're expanding it a lot. We've, we, we, we've worked very hard in the last six months. We're relaunching our website shortly. We're doing a number of projects. We've got a, a part-time, very excellent administrator. And what we're trying to do is advance projects on training, education, on advocacy, and, and, uh, and so forth. Uh, in relation to the work that Global Alliance does. And PRSA has made a great impact on that and will no doubt do so in the future. But just watch the space, watch our website, www.globalpr.org, and you'll find a lot there. Colin Farrington, thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com.